You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are our interviews with the star of The Killing of Two Lovers, Clean Crawford, and the sound re-recording mixer and sound designer, Peter Albrechtson, by Will Mavity, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Hey, Alex. Yeah? What do you call a pile of kittens? What? A mountain. You working? Yeah. This early? Yeah, Dad. Stop digging. I think we're doing the right thing. David, I love you. You love me. We're trying to figure this out. By the time. I'm losing her, Dad. Love is a feeling, and feelings, they move in, they move out. Mom's cheating on you. All right, everyone, you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia, and today I am very, very excited to be joined here by the star of The Killing of Two Lovers, Clayne Crawford. Clayne, how are you today? I'm good, Matthew. How are you? Doing well, doing super well. I'm, I'm extraordinarily happy that this film is finally out and available for people to see, considering I saw it at the world premiere at Sundance two years ago, and it just feels like forever at this point. Oh, man. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, checking out the film at Sundance. Yeah, you know, look, this pandemic has kind of put a, uh, a wrinkle in everything, hasn't we? We were so grateful for Neon to kind of come on board. Uh, but when they said we they wanted to wait till theaters open, mm-hmm. um, we panicked a little bit. But, you know, if this thing had come out six months ago, the excitement would already be over. So it's nice to uh, to have it have coming out now. And the fact that theaters are starting to open back up a little bit more, it's, it's all very exciting. Absolutely. And also, too, it's got a VOD uh, release as well for those who maybe, you know, cannot check it out uh, in theaters. So it's widely available. And I have been urging everyone I know to check it out because for my money, it's one of the best independent films of this year. And your performance in it is a large reason for that. So really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Look, that movie was a labor of love for sure. So uh I, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you taking the time and, and for your kind words. Yeah, not a problem. So talk to me a little bit about that in regards to getting hooked up with Robert. Uh, he obviously had a hand in, well, pretty much everything with this movie from editing, directing, writing, and producing. So how did you guys get linked up on this? Did the script come to you? Did you audition? Like, what was the process? No, I met Robert in 2009 um, at Sundance. We both had films up there. He had a, he had a short it may have been his first short that he had at Sundance. It was um, Jack and the Rabbit. And I, 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 I fell in love with his style um, and the way he was able to create so much tension by doing very little, uh, mm-hmm. just his, his style alone. So immediately I was excited to work with Robert and he had sent me a script uh, that we tried to get made for a couple of years. And then I would go off to do a job and he would go make something else. And, um, and that kind of went on with different pieces of material. But like I said, you know, uh, up until 2018, and I found myself a little with some time on my hands and, and we'd been unable to get anyone to kind of believe in our vision. So I just said, look, what if I finance the film? Well, you know, to say that we came into this with this idea that we we're going to go make this feature that mm-hmm. everyone was going to kind of be able to see that that's not the case for me. It was more about taking very limited resources. We had, you know, 40 grand, which we ended up spending 32,000 of it on the film. 
But I said, look, if we take 40 grand and we just go shoot something with that shows what we can accomplish if someone gave us a real budget, you know, if they gave us, you know, a half a million to a million bucks. Sure. Um, and Robert was excited about that. So he had this short that he had written called The Drift. And he sent that to me in August of 2018. And I said, if you can build on this and create and kind of let's stretch it out into a feature link, I really think this is doable as it relates to the finances that we had. Because mm-hmm. uh, it was such a small contained story um, yeah. that was truly about performances, which you know, as a fan of European cinema, um, where they don't have the resources like we do in the States, you know, they have to focus on talent, on the talent itself Mm -hmm. and on great storytelling. Um, so I was intrigued. So Robert went back and he started writing and he called me in October. Now, now granted we worked, we kind of did a lot of work together as far as the character and he and I are both fathers. Um, and, and we cherish that, that role, uh, greatly. And, and, and our children, like old dads, you know, they, it kind of changed our lives. So kind of building David in this story was just really interesting to us. And in October, he sent me a draft, uh, which was The Killing of Two Lovers. And I mean, Matt, I fell in love with it. You know, that opening mm. scene. What was exciting for me was we didn't have to explain the why. Yeah. We were in a situation where it's gotten, it's escalated to this point that we realize instantly that David's at the edge. He's, he's at the end of his rope, right? He's on the edge of the cliff, uh, grasp, kind of grasping to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, man, he sent me the draft in October and we were on set shooting the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, and we shot it in 12 days and we just Ooh. pumped it out. Yeah, man. But again, this was, there was never, there was zero pressure. It was just like, let's just go. Right. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if we lose every dollar. Um, and, and we shot with that free kind of approach. And, um, and then Robert sent me the first cut and I was like, holy cow, man, this is, this is an actual film <laughs> really well. And that was, I mean, that was me watching it in black and white, with zero sound. I was like, holy crap, we might have some. You mentioned uh, it being very freeing and a lot of the um, dialogue exchanges take place over these long extended takes with barely any edits when there is an edit to a close-up it's very purposeful in uh when it's reacting to a specific moment so for you as an actor and i imagine this was very theatrical very play-like to uh be able to act in some of these scenes what was that like for you Uh, liberating Mm -hmm. you know having you know because again knowing that we had 12 days knowing that we had such limited time and money we we just knew traditional coverage wasn't going to be an option sure Um, and robert you know he's a photography professor at byu Mm -hmm. so for him composition is extremely important it shows Uh, it it does show right um and he goes look i feel like this needs to each frame needs to almost be a living photograph um and I, i said that's really interesting and he goes, I only want to use cuts uh, for close-ups in the car with you and Nikki. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but I want to be a little, I, I don't want to be traditional. Because we knew, look, this is an art project, essentially. So we don't have to follow any rules. And he goes, yeah. like, I want to be on the opposite actor when when one's talking. So the focus is going to be on the listening. And I just thought that was so incredible. And it gave us the opportunity, like you suggested, it was like a play. 
Mm -hmm. So because we shot in this little tiny town uh, of Kanash, Utah, which I think at the time was population 360, 300. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, Matt, there's nothing either direction uh, for 45 minutes in either direction. So truly isolated. Yeah. Um, So there was no distractions for us as actors. So yes, we only had 12 days, but what we did was rehearse any chance we had, meaning if we were not on camera shooting at that moment, we would walk over to the house and me, Chris and Seth, would run through that big 17 minute scene because it was so much dialogue and so much blocking. But again, never was this a hindrance for us. It was a stage, like you said, and, mm-hmm. and it gave us the opportunity without having cuts. It allowed us to know that a, it's going to live as one piece. Mm-hmm. So it has to be right. Um, there is no chance of cutting in and out. So, um, but the gift that came with that was each moment before could build on the other. So we were, we were never, you know, in traditional filmmaking, you have to pace your performance in a way. Sure. You to you have to say, okay, we're in the wide shot. I'm going to kind of go big, and then as we move into the tight coverage, I'm going to kind of contain it all, um, which is somewhat manipulative at times, right? And mm-hmm. certainly, it's on the forefront of your mind. You're working like this. All that technical BS is completely pushed to the side and you only focus on the performance. Yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. And, and and like I said before, like uh, not just in his uh, photography, but it shows too in the performances because they're just so incredibly lived in and so genuine. Like I, one of my favorite aspects of this movie is that there's equal weight given on both sides of the argument of the characters where no one is necessarily in the wrong or in the right. It's just a fact of life. People fall in love, people fall out of love. And sometimes there isn't a bad guy involved necessarily. And I, I just love that approach to this method of storytelling as a, as you mentioned before, you're, you're a father. So like that approach that I just mentioned before, taking the melodrama out of it and you coming at this as a father yourself, on a purely like just emotional level, like what did that ultimately mean for you as a father? Well, it, it meant that it wasn't a stretch for me to get there emotionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally can't imagine not having my little guys with me. I mean, I'm on set right now <clears throat> and my son's in the next room. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like I, uh, I, I just cherish being a father and, and not having those little moments with them. Um, you know, going to breakfast, walking them to school, uh, whatever it may be, to lose that and know that I have to try to cram all that time into a weekend. Mm-hmm. Man, the pressure that it puts on them and as uh, a mother or father is is just so it's so so strain. Uh, it puts such a strain on the relationship. So you know, it was it was again because of the twelve days, it allowed me to completely immerse myself there was no coming up for air mm-hmm. and, 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 and it's, that's challenging when you're working for six months, it's almost impossible. Mm. But on a film like this with that much time, again, it just goes back to those luxuries. Um, yeah. It almost so, feels like a sprint at times. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes on those really long shoots, it's more of a marathon and mm-hmm. I, I can run sprints all day. So, and, <laughs> and again, knowing that we had that kind of world that, you know, you suggested where there is no good guy or bad guy. You know, I think traditionally Hollywood wants to put a black hat on this guy and a white hat on the other. And that's just not how life is. It doesn't right. represent the reality that we all live in. 
mm-hmm. the basics, which is, you know, you and I are quite capable of doing some really beautiful things. But if someone walks through that door and they've got something in their hand to attack my child, I'm liable to rip his face off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's sure. not, those two things are so contradicting. Um, but I find we as humans, it just depends on the scenario that we find ourselves in, how we mm-hmm. react. I'm different with my mom than I am with my wife, you know, as we all are. And, and I, I don't think that's conveyed. I feel a lot of times it's, it's, we only see characters through one lens mm-hmm. and, and that to me is a, is a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely understand that as well. You, you mentioned before that you saw the first cut of the film, uh, black and white, no sound. So it must have come as quite a surprise to you, not knowing necessarily on set when you're filming it, how the sound of this movie was going to come together. When you saw that final cut and you heard all of those metallic grinding sounds and everything else that Robert threw in there, what was your initial reaction? Because it's so unlike anything else I've heard uh, in recent memory. You know, I, I think a lot of times people kind of stylize a film just for the sake of it. You know, mm-hmm. for us, the four by three was designed to make the audience feel claustrophobic at times. Yep. Um, and that, you know, for instance, when David's in the truck, mm-hmm. um, you can't see in front of him or behind him. And I don't think David can see in front of him or behind him. So that was really kind of crucial. As it relates to sound, you know, this was a long process and there was no one else, you know, Robert and I were the only producers. Uh, we were the only kind of creatives involved. So yes, the first cut being black and white, I was blown away. Um, and then as we moved into color, it was very exciting. And then we brought Peter Albrechen on, who was our sound designer. Great guy. And man, Peter, he, he's from, he's from Copenhagen, Denmark, you know, the mm-hmm. Dutch have always, <laughs> They've always been on the forefront of sound, haven't they? I mean, they just push the envelope when it comes to creative. And he I, listens I, to my show, so he's probably going to listen to this, and he's going to love that you uh, said that. I'm sure. <laughs> well, hey, Peter knows I love him because I just hired him to come do my next film, right? So that Robert Perfect. and I just <laughs> so I fly to Copenhagen literally in two weeks. Um, nice, nice. Yeah, because uh, our U.S. Embassy denied him his work visa, so now we're going there, which is fine. And yeah. Excited. I've never been to Copenhagen, so I'm, I'm fortunate or excited for the opportunity. Nice. Uh, yeah, Peter is 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 super talented, and we explained, you know, Robert comes from a music background. His father mm-hmm. taught music his whole life, and Robert had kind of been talking about this franquette kind of approach, and I wasn't familiar with it. And when I watched that first cut, and it's David starts climbing out of that window, and the door slamming and the creaking of the ship and the the hammer and the chamber being spun on the revolver i was like holy cow peter you know a lot of times matt you go with the sound designer and you spend all of your effort and time just trying to get it to where you feel like it should be right send a film to peter he comes in the first pass, he's already exceeded your expectations. Oh yeah. So for us listening to that first, that first cut, it just blew us away because it defined what David was dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and what's interesting is, you know, to kind of explain some of those sounds, I think the door in our, in killing into lovers, there's a truck door opening and closing like 76 times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So Peter's thought process was, that's all David hears. The truck, the gun, the creek, like this is just, and and it was so exciting to elevate the film with that sound design. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it's an appearance. Yeah, I, I think so too. It helps with the tension and the immersion, as you uh, mentioned before as well. So all of it pieces to come together as a whole. Um, we're just about out of time here. So I always like to wrap up uh, these interviews by asking uh, one question. And sometimes people can tell me, sometimes they can't. What is next, if you can tell us, for you? I can tell you. I was just, uh, you know, as I said, Robert and I went and made our second film yep. uh, in December. Now, granted, you know, one film was made for 30 grand. The other one was made during a pandemic. So mm -hmm. we, both of us are just eager to make an actual a film without any of these restrictions. But yeah. <laughs> uh, we got a film, The Integrity of Joseph Chambers. Mm -hmm. um, it's starring uh, Jordana Brewster, Michael Raymond James, Jeopardy Morgan. We're really excited. Uh, we're, as I said, I fly to Copenhagen in a couple of weeks. So we'll be finishing up sound. And and then our goal is to submit to Venice. Um, nice. They were really excited about the killing of two lovers before the pandemic hit. And mm -hmm. they've just been very generous through this process. I'm hoping we have a premiere there. Um, but our, that's really not our concern. Our, our focus right now is just making the film great and make it kind of live up to what our expectations are. And uh, we're excited for Peter to get his hands in it and start doing what Peter does. I mentioned in my review for The Killing of Two Lovers that it's the kind of discovery film that makes you so excited to see what everyone does next. So hearing you say that just makes me uh, even more excited than I was before. So thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, hey man, we, we got the band back together. So hopefully yeah. <laughs> uh, ho hopefully our, 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 uh, sophomore, we don't hit a sophomore slump. Yeah, lightning might strike twice. We'll see. <laughs> well, in any event, Clayton, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Matt, I appreciate you taking the time. And I, again, thanks for all your kind words, man. Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. Cheers. Would you hit me? What's his name? Derek. say bye, so I just want to come by and say goodnight, and I love you. I only agreed to do this because you promised me that we were going to work through this. You need to fight. You need to fight for us. David, can you look at me? This is my family. They're worth it. So, dude, I, I mentioned this online, but I can't remember the last time an audio track made me as uneasy as this one did. It's phenomenally uncomfortable. So, first off, there's no composer credited here, right? Like, you you are the score, effectively, as well? Yeah, exactly. So, the Robert decided to make this movie with, with no score, with no music, and only work with sound. And he still, uh, um, just the other day, he, he had a laugh because he was thinking of when we were mixing and like two days in and I'm kind of like sitting with my 
sound effects and sound design and like looking at him and saying, you know, Robert, I'm, I'm, uh, it's it kind of, I'm, I'm kind of the composer of this film. And then he, then he looked at me and said, well, I could have told you that from the very start <laughs> and just laughed. Because it's, mm. and you, you literally do incorporate some instruments, don't you? I, I thought I heard like a bass going at times and certainly the, um, you have a bell or something. I mean, there's, per, there's percussion aspects that do become musical, right? Like you, you use some instruments. Uh, I actually don't use any instruments. It's all like different metal sounds that I recorded. Like uh, uh, I, I love recording new sounds for every film I do. And um, a couple of years ago, I did this monster movie where there's a big monster fight taking place in a car, actually on the roof of a car. And I had my assistant go to this like car scrapyard and like smash up a car. And then when I was doing Killing of Two Lovers, Robert from the very beginning wanted to like have this sound collage that was kind of like the, the sound of the inside of the main character in a way. And because so much of the film takes place in David's car, the main character's car, uh, I was thinking, okay, let's, let's try and use sounds of a car and then I was like I had this flashback to these sounds and so like it's a combination of like car doors being slammed there's car alarms and then there's a lot of metal scratching and screeching which is a lot of that comes from this these recordings of like a car getting torn apart and then I, I just built that. Build that rhythmically so, I mean, it comes from uh, uh, Robert having this idea that he wanted to um, kind of reference this, um, this musical style called Musique Concrète. It was invented uh, in France back in the 1940s and was a style of music where you didn't use instruments but made music with uh, sounds. And a lot of this music is quite rhythmical. So often when you kind of do sounds that are more expressive or like it's, it's about like saying something about the inside of a character, it's often more like drones or like tones. And Robert really wanted something that was that had a rhythm. So from the very beginning, I've, I've made this collage of like metal hits and stuff that created this rhythm and i sent this to to robert while he was editing the film uh, robert is uh, robert it was also the picture editor of the film and uh, i was super nervous because i was thinking okay this this sound collage is really crazy in a way like <laughs> okay who who the hell would do like something <laughs> like this which is built from car doors and car alarms and a car being torn apart, but uh, Robert he um, he loved it, and but actually it took a week for me to like I sent it off to Robert and I didn't hear back from him and I was thinking okay <laughs> you're fired now I'm getting fired or like <laughs> now now I'm not working on this movie anymore and then Robert sent sent and a new version of the cut back and then he had t 
taken this collage that I'd done and then put it in like, I think five different places in the film because he loved it so much. So that was really the beginning of using this kind of abstract sound collage as pretty much as music in the film. So it became like a theme throughout the film that you return to again and again. Yeah, how did you guys, was it Robert's idea to use, uh, it seems like, I wouldn't say most, but a large number of scenes, the transitions are always punctuated by, it sounds like you're like hitting a saucepan, there's like a bang. Um, was that just one of the many sounds you gave Robert and he's like, all right, we're doing this, or was that kind of your idea that that works as like a scene transition device? That was that was actually a part of this like first sound collage that I did, and uh, it was actually like me thinking, okay, there needs to be a little humor as well here. So it was like, dang, 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 and is that exactly Robert what just it was? Loved that. So he it used it several places. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's this thing where I had these crazy ideas and then gave those to Robert and then he just built on that and made it even crazier in a way. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Was it weird for you also as both the sound designer and the re-recording mixer basically being told, you know, usually there's a whole idea of like, if the audience like is thinking about the sound when they're watching a movie, you've done it wrong. Was it weird having a film where basically it seems like the director was like, no, I want them always to be thinking about the sound and getting to really play with the levels to make sure, oh, we all notice the sounds there. Robert really wants to use the sound for for telling his story and he's really not afraid of sound he's actually like he really inspires you to explore and experiment all the time so it it feels really good to kind of work together even though it's also like you're as a creative uh, collaborator I'm definitely like getting pushed into doing something that is that is quite like different than what you would normally do 
but mm-hmm. it's also super inspiring because you get this feeling that okay we are we're doing something special and you're ex- i mean experimenting with things and then you're realizing okay this is really something that gives this film it's it's a, a special unique voice and robert really wanted the sound to be a, a prominent part of the storytelling so in and in many ways not just with these sound collages but also just building an environment and constantly all these textual elements that are in there and really playing around with also the dynamics of sound so there are moments that are super loud and then there are moments that are super quiet yeah um and i really love that those kind of dynamics as well and robert shot the film in a way with these very very long takes mm-hmm. where i mean the action is kind of unfolding in front of our eyes that means that there's a lot of room for sound because there's time to kind of like create like an, an environment and really embrace the characters and with sound um so it means that because of this this way of shooting the film that sound really had a prominent place in the film well i was actually curious about that because i know it was um it was a contender for the indie spirit award um i don't remember what the category is but it's it's their their ultra low low budget category so I know he wasn't working at a huge budget. There's a lot of scenes where action and dialogue, because of these kind of static long takes, are off screen. So I assume you had to do ADR work and all kinds of other stuff. Tell me about working with pretty slim budgetary constraints to kind of build this sonic world when you don't have a huge budget to play with. Actually, what what is pretty amazing about this film is that um, what Robert said from the beginning was that when he was when he wrote the script, then he 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 mailed me and said, uh, "Peter, I need you to do this movie." <laughs> oh. uh, we had worked on his previous feature, uh, "When She Runs," mm-hmm. which he did together with uh, his uh, director partner Rodrigo Beck, and we really hit it off doing that film and I think Robert was just like okay now is the time to really explore what we can do with sound so he had this idea from the very beginning that sound was going to be a big big part of this story so already like actually in the budget he half of the budget of the film paid for the sound oh wow so he he of course, it was still low budget, but the amount of like money put into the, the sound was outstanding for the size of the film. It was just just that in itself was like, I mean, for me, so incredibly privileged and like just amazing that you can really feel how how important sound was to Robert, and and that wasn't just something that. He was saying sound is important. No, it was actually like putting his money into it. But of course, the thing in this film is that, as you're saying, like lots of things are happening off screen. There's actually very little ADR in the film. Uh, I had an amazing dialogue mixer on the film called David Barber, who uh, was, uh, I mean, 
he was able to to clean up the most noisy stuff and even uh, what we what we realized during the dialogue mixing was that something that David Barber tried or very early on was taking one scene and then splitting out the dialogue so that it was panning together mm -hmm. with the characters. And that worked so well. Uh, he, he just did it for one scene and we were like, this is amazing because suddenly you really felt the distance between the characters. Like yeah. that's, uh, David in one side and his wife in the other side. Then we did that in all the scenes. Some of the scenes were only recorded with one microphone. So to be a little bit technical, like what he, what David did was like taking this, the signal and then removing, for example, in the fireworks scene with the kids, there's, there's only a mic like close to David and he's got a, a radio mic as well. So he, he was like, David was able to take David's dialogue and then remove the, the sounds of the kids from that, then put that on the left side. And then on the right side, he removed David's dialogue from the same signal and then only had the kids' voices. Oh, that is so wild. we did a lot of that stuff. So, I mean, really, really, really like, in a way, a lot of manipulation, but it really created this amazing feeling of having the dialogue, like un underscoring this feeling that the, the, the characters are very distanced to each other. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a film where you really can hear kind of, you know, they shot it. It looks like it's in Colorado or Utah or something, and it the, this emptiness and wideness really plays. And I, I hear that in the fireworks scene too. That's an incredibly uncomfortable scene to watch. The way it builds with the awkwardness. You mentioned manipulation. Uh, I know you're a guy who likes to record sound effects. What kind of distortion did you do in general to say, cause I know you have, it sounds like there's like a feedback loop from a mic that's playing in the background. Tell me about some of the, the sounds that you just really stretched and distorted in here. There's lots of different stuff in there where we really like mistreating sounds. <laughs> <laughs> some of it is uh, using an old, tape recorder to then record sounds onto an old I mean old analog tape and then record it very loudly so it distorts and then take it back into Pro Tools and then use that because it has this really intense texture. There's a lot of stuff where I'm doing like these crazy delays and there's a scene where Robert uh, comes back to his father's house um, after having had a really bad experience with his wife uh, and he gets really angry and he beats up this this um, this doll oh, like that it's he like has a punching bag dummy yeah. yeah exactly and it goes totally ballistic and I did all kind of weird distortions of Clay Crawford's voice and breaths and just to get this in, I mean, this feeling that what you hear is not reality, it's how David hears it. So there's a lot of like, whenever he gets really angry, then things distort. There's, all, there's also like when he's driving, sometimes like if, if you can feel that he's uneasy, then I took these sounds of, I mean, I've, I recorded some 
really uh, like noisy cars, uh, like <laughs> that are like playing then on top of like a car engine. Um, so you just have this feeling that there's something wrong, and it's it's a way of creating this this uneasiness uh, that goes with David. And then some in some places we we become it becomes all quiet and like so there's constantly this feeling that you're in a sonic environment that in a way reflects the main characters inside there's a there's a really intense scene in the film where he takes that dummy and he puts it in a field and he he shoots at it tell me i thought it was interesting because that's a scene where you have a lot of this um this this non-diegetic sound but then also you really it's very pronounced it's a very wide shot but all the sounds like uh even though the camera's set up across a field from him you can hear something like he's got a revolver and you hear the clink of the bullets in his hand when he puts them in there as if you're right there and then you also still have this this uh underlying layer of the ding boom in the background. So tell me a little bit about that scene because I really love that moment. This this film, there's so much rhythm to the sounds and like <laughs> and for me, a lot of this things with that he's doing with the gun also had a rhythm. Um, so I'm often uh, approaching sounds, sound effects like they are musical instruments. So Whenever I hear something that has a tonality or a rhythm, I, I often like enhance that or really try to kind of create a certain rhythm with that. And I love those sounds of the gun. And then I also love the sound of when he, when you actually hear the gunshots in this like vast echo. So there was this constant dynamic like between being very close to David and hearing all the small sounds but also being in this like giant landscape where like the sound just echoes forever. It's one of those scenes where you would normally place a, a piece of music because there's no dialogue. Uh, you, you would, as a director, you would often kind of put in a piece of music kind of saying, okay, what are we supposed to feel here? And I think it becomes so much more interesting because there's not a piece of music telling us what to feel. There's, a, there's these sounds which create this rhythm, but also creates this feeling of someone who's like on the verge of a breakdown, but mm -hmm. also at the same time who has this enormous intensity. It feels like you're very close to David. And at the same time, we also experiencing what it is he's doing so there's no music to tell us if we should be afraid or if we should is he preparing for something good or is he preparing for something bad is it what's going on and i really like that i feel that it's a big part of the fascinating like storytelling in the film that you don't really know what's going to happen next and i like that the sounds are not necessarily I mean, that they are mixed in an unnatural way. Like sometimes some sounds are suddenly loud and then they become quiet. And, and we're, not, we're not mixing this film in a naturalistic way. 
we're mixing it very much in an emotional way. And, and for me, when working on the film, the more I worked on it, the more th it, it was evident that if we really like use the sounds in the most kind of expressionistic way and the most emotional way, the most subjective way, then you also got closer to this character who in a way is unsympathetic. Like you open the film with him, like <laughs> pointing a gun towards his, his wife. So there's something that that's quite like unsympathetic, but because we experience the film in the same way as he's experiencing it, the, the, the the scenes it means that we really you you identify with him it's really interesting so suddenly you feel that wow this cat this he's really interesting he's like whoa this what's going on and so you're there with him because you feel what he feels yeah no i mean i i think you tapped into something which is that i think the reason this film got me so much is i was so anxious because you're right there's there's nothing to guide me and you're also right, he's, he's not that sympathetic character, but you're on the edge of your seat. You don't know if he's gonna turn into like Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver or if it's a redemption story. It's, no, it's it's very effective. And I, I really did think this film uh, is, even on such a small budget, is really pushing the the boundaries of what you can do with sound and telling a story. I think it is, it's pretty groundbreaking, pretty important that. so. Um, we're about out of time here, but um, A, what was your favorite scene to work on here? And B, anything else you really want to tell me and everyone who's listening to this about the fucking awesome sound design you did here? Thank you. I think my favorite sound in the film is actually one of the smallest, tiniest sounds, which is like, um, it's the first time that David runs into the, his wife's uh, new boyfriend at like this uh, local grocery shop and mm -hmm. he decides to follow him in his car and he drives away and you can feel the aggression in the car I added I put it in uh, animal roars like lion That's roar cool. and tiger roar for the for the car for his car then he drives away and it gets all quiet and you hear these leaves in the wind like across the street before you then cut to like him driving and trying to like stop the boyfriend and they, like and David is almost run over by a truck that's passing him, which you don't see but only hear. And that small sound of the leaves for me that's this kind of moment where kind of like the silence before the before the chaos in a way. I I really love those moments and and um. That's one of definitely one of my favorite sounds. Yeah, Generally, I, I yeah, I'm really happy about like how we used sound in a way where it's saying so much about the characters and the emotions, and I love the amount of cows mooing in the background, <laughs> and and, uh, and then I love at the towards the end there's a really significant use of total silence that uh, I also really love where um, which I don't want to say what happens but it's a it's a very important moment in the story 
Well, Peter, this is fantastic. Um, I can't wait for everyone to see and hear this movie. Um, I know you got something big. You can't tell us what it is yet, but are there any projects that have been announced that we can look forward to hearing your sound in this year? The great thing is that that Robert and I are working on a new film, um, The Integrity of Joseph Chambers is the title, and Clayne Crawford is starring again. And we're going to mix that already next month. So Amazing. Robert is really, really fast. And um, I mean, as uh, Robert told me, like when doing Killing of Two Lovers, that Peter, there was like, there's a lot of, of moments in that film with very little dialogue. And in this film, there's even less dialogue. <laughs> God, that's wild. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Yeah, so um, that'll be out later in the year, later in the year, we hope. So um, yeah, it's an ongoing collaboration, and it's 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 super inspiring. Well, I can't wait to hear that too. Well, uh, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's always great to catch up, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you helped bring us this awesome sounding movie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Will. Absolutely. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interview with Clayne Crawford and Will Navity's interview with Peter Albrechtson here on the Next Best Picture podcast for The Killing of Two Lovers. The film is currently available in theaters and on VOD from Neon, and we highly urge you to check out one of the best indie gems of the year. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.